first reading is from Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. The word of the Lord. Let us stand for the reading of the gospel. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain down on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Gospel of Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak to us and reveal yourself to us. So I pray in light of that truth that I as preacher just get out of the way, far, far less of me and far, far more of you. That your people gathered here would be edified and your son Jesus glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Would you be seated please? Three times a year pilgrims ascended to celebrate the feast. Singing, discussing, reflecting as they went on the Psalms of Ascent. An ancient process of formation as they learn what it is to live God's way in God's world. We, as a church, are joining them, ascending to celebrate the Easter feast, learning together where God is calling us in Jesus. Our psalm today, Psalm 125, which I'll invite you to turn to in your Bibles or on your Bible app or in front of you in your pew Bible, you'll find it on page 572 invites us with them to reflect on the topographical features 
of the pilgrim way. Why? Because they illustrate deep truths to be held on to and to be lived into. Now, from the first step of that pilgrimage, Mount Zion was the destination, crowned with the Jewish temple. Each successive step brought it closer and closer until it filled the entire view. Verse 1, Pilgrim, do you see that mountain? Mount Zion? Those who trust in the Lord are like that mountain. They are? In what way? Well, they're immovable. When the storm clouds gather, the winds howl, the rains pummel, the armies march over her, Mount Zion, she remains immovable. Those who trust in the Lord are similarly immovable. To be immovable. The past few years, with every hint of a new variant, with every successive shutting down and reopening, our sense of freedom and security has risen and fallen. We wake up one morning full of vitality, rejoicing in the sun, the next day gray and dismal, faltering and moody. We are immovable. Ah, but to be immovable... The opinions and words of others ring loudly in our ear. Our sense of self rises and falls with them. Spiritually, we're full of faith one day and the next in the depths of doubt and despair. We are immovable. But ah, to be immovable. We find ourselves in a crucible of circumstances, be it illness, death, broken relationship, crushed dreams, financial hardship. And our character, our convictions are challenged. It's much easier to protect ourselves by becoming bitter, hard, unforgiving, closed, than to remain soft, open, loving, forgiving. We are movable. But oh, to be immovable. Those who trust in the Lord like Mount Zion are immovable. That's not the only fruit of trust. Verse 2, look around you, pilgrim. Mount Zion is not the tallest mountain. Look east to the Mount of Olives. Look north to Mount Scopus. Look west. Look south. You are surrounded by a saucer of hills. All around you are ramparts, barriers to invasion. And as these hills surround you, so the Lord surrounds his people with his grace, his love, his providence, his peace, his strength. How good. So if I trust in God, nothing bad will ever happen to me. I'm protected from the changes and the chances of life. There's smooth sailing from here on out, right? But wait. The invitation to deep trust, to receive the fruits that it brings, is spoken into a very specific situation. Verse 3, 4. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. There would be times, more often than not, where the pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem would indeed perceive and experience 
that the scepter of wickedness rested upon the land. A foreign power occupied, plundered resources, crushed them with severe taxation, enslaved their best and their brightest. Neighbors colluded with the enemy. Who could you trust? Any hint of resistance was met with brutal, bloody force. Some would have been taken in the night, the missing. No one knew where or if they would ever return. Missing children, missing mothers, missing fathers. The wickedness was not a momentary blip. It went on day after day, year after year, generation after generation. And yet they sang, The scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land. As we ascend to celebrate the Easter feast, it's hard not to feel the scepter of wickedness resting upon the land. Deep chasms of division gape wide all around us. Insurrection, occupation, two years of pandemic measures and governmental supports that have made some far wealthier while we've strapped future generations with mountains of debt. There is systemic injustice. Vaccine inequality all but guarantees more variants and further waves. Geopolitical tensions rise, invasion is threatened, a migrant crisis continues unabated far from media spotlight. Add to that your own life or the life of those around you. Divisions, broken relationship, failing mental, physical health, financial hardship. It appears that the scepter of righteousness rests upon the land, and yet we join them to sing the scepter of of wickedness shall not rest upon the land. We sing of a future where God will make a final end of wickedness. We sing of a future where God will wipe injustice, violence, illness, poverty, brokenness. We sing of a future where God will come to flood the earth with new creation, with his beauty, his justice, his love, his presence. Why do we sing such a song when it appears the scepter of wickedness rests upon the land? Well, consider this. What is the temptation if day after day, year after year, generation after generation, You are under the thumb of wickedness, and nothing seems to be changing. In fact, it looks like it's getting worse. Well, The temptation is to take matters into our own hands, isn't it? To fight back against the wickedness, more often than not, with the same weapons wickedness has used against us. To meet sword with sword, violence with violence, bloodshed with bloodshed, fear with fear, Angry word with angry word. Trust in this promise. Sing this song. Why? The psalmist adds in verse 3, Lest you stretch out your hand to do wrong. Hold on to this promise that God will make a final end of wickedness or you will become the very thing you wish were not there. So what should we do in light of this promise? Twiddle our thumbs in passive, patient waiting? Bury our heads in the sand? Whistle in the dark? Occupy ourselves with pleasant distractions? 
No. The psalmist invites the listener to a particular pattern in light of this trust. And it's phrased as a prayer in verse 4. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Are we being invited here to trust in some sort of cosmic karma? God, reward the good and and punish the bad. So Jesus' follower, just keep living by all the good Christian rules and everything will turn out okay in the end. Is that what the psalmist is inviting? No. The phrasing of these last two verses is in the form of wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is found throughout the Bible and it arises from this conviction that in creation we see a God who brings order out of chaos, who forms what is formless, who patterns what is patternless. We all know that there is a pattern, a, a fabric to our physical reality. We can study it. We can quantify it. We ignore it to our peril. If an engineer builds a bridge out of step with the pattern of physical reality, that bridge is going to fail. And wisdom literature says that just as God has knit a fabric, a pattern into our physical reality, he's knit a pattern, a fabric into every aspect of life. There's a pattern to relationships, a pattern to raising children, a pattern to your spiritual life, a a pattern to managing your money. And living in step with that pattern leads to the most success possible in that area of life. Let me give an example to illustrate. Proverbs 22.6 says this, Train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. Now, that's an absolute statement, right? We have an aversion to absolute statements. We're constantly thinking of the exception. I know this person who, who had horrible parenting, and look, yeah, they turned out to be a fairly decent human being. Or I know this, this, these, these people who had some great parenting, and yet they went completely off the rails. With our aversion to absolute statements, we miss the wisdom here. That there's a fabric that God has knit into parenting. That children need instruction, discipline, teaching in order to be set up well for life. We ignore that fabric to our peril. It's not a guarantee or promise, not a placing of blame if your kids do, in fact, go off the rails. It's an expression of truth. With no nuance, no footnotes, no exceptions. It says this is the pattern that God has knit into this area of life. Children need discipline, instruction, teaching in order to live life rightly. Now, this is what I believe the psalmist is affirming here. There's a pattern, a fabric to living in step, living with a trust that God will make a final end to wickedness. And what is that fabric? What is that pattern? Well, perhaps the clearest expression of that pattern is found in Matthew 5, which was our gospel reading. And Jesus names in it how we often respond when we've been wronged. Eye for an eye, tooth 
for a tooth, violence with violence, angry word with angry word. Instead, Jesus says, here's the fabric. Here's the pattern. Don't resist the evil one. And then Jesus gives three examples of what that pattern is to look like. If someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other one also. Now, most of my life I've read, I've heard, I've preached on these examples in such a way that it seems to affirm a passivity that renders a person a doormat to be walked over. Recently, I read Walter Wink's book entitled Powers That Be, and he has a chapter in that book on these examples, and he sees each one, and I think rightly, as an example of nonviolent resistance that turns the table on the entire interaction. You see, to strike someone on the right cheek was to strike them with the back of a hand. It was a strike that was given from a superior to an inferior from a master to a servant, from an occupier to the occupied. To turn the other cheek invited a strike with a closed fist. And in that culture, only equals could fight with closed fists. So to turn the other cheek was to say, you may have treated me in that moment as less than, but I'm your equal, like you made in the image of God turns the tables, the entire interaction. Jesus gives a second example. If someone takes your tunic, give to them your cloak as well. This is a picture of someone who has a debt that they just can't pay. And their wealthy creditor wants to get that money back. And so sues for the only thing that they would have to their name, and that was their robe, their outer garment. And Jesus says, if this happens to you, give them your cloak as well. Meaning, give them your underwear. Picture it for a moment, right? You've got a wealthy creditor left holding not only your outer robe, but also your underwear as you walk out of court as naked as the day you were born. Right? And in an honor and a shame culture... Nakedness is shame, and shame rests on the person who exposed the nakedness of another. Both the creditor and the society that supports such a justice system is exposed, brought to shame. It's an act of nonviolent resistance where the tables are turned. Jesus gives a third example. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with them two. At that time, Roman law dictated that a soldier could force a a civilian to carry their gear for a mile. It was written right into the military code. But you couldn't ask them to carry it any further. And the Romans were merciless against infractions to their rules. Any soldier who had a civilian carry their gear for more than a mile could face demotion, a flogging, a, a constricting of their rations. So can you picture it? Right? They get to that mile marker. The soldier turns to the civilian expecting their gear back. And the civilian keeps walking. What's going on here? It's shock, right? Usually civilians run when they see me. 
Why, why is this kindness? What's going on? Where's my commanding officer? What if they see this? Can you, can you picture it? The soldier arguing with the civilian, pleading, give me my stuff back. It's an act of nonviolent resistance that turns the tables on the interaction. With each successive example, you can almost see the faces around Jesus erupt in smiles. The laughter begin to spread through the crowd as they picture how such acts would undermine the scepter of wickedness. These examples are not so much rules to be followed as examples to trigger creative thinking about how wickedness might be resisted. In his book, Wink tells the story that comes from South Africa right before the fall of apartheid. Now, the Afrikaners were wanting to bulldoze this poor area of town, and they brought the bulldozers in with a line of police, and they gave the people, mostly mothers, five minutes to collect their things before they would flatten it. And perhaps aware of the residual puritanical sensibilities of the Afrikaners, the women stripped down and stood before the bulldozers naked. The police turned tail and ran. Seven years later, when Wink was writing the book, that area of town still remained. This is the pattern, the fabric, that trust in the promise that God will make a final end of wickedness fosters. But perhaps the fabric that has the most impact on wickedness is what Jesus says next. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. No, I tell you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. On a Sunday morning in June of 1991, Michael Weiser and his wife Julie were unpacking boxes in their new home. They just moved to Lincoln, Nebraska. They got a call on the telephone. They answered and a voice snarled. You'll be sorry you ever moved to 5810 Randolph Street, Jew boy, and then hung up. Two days later, they got their mail. Inside was a manila envelope containing notes and pictures. One note said, the KKK is watching you, scum. There were pictures, caricatures of Jews and blacks, pictures of dead bodies of Jews and blacks. Another note said, the hollow hoax was nothing compared to what's going to happen to you. They called the police, who laid responsibility at the feet of Larry Trapp, who was the state leader of the KKK, whose organization commonly terrorized non-white families. Trapp was 44, the leader of the KKK, and was by this time confined to a wheelchair due to late-stage diabetes. His apartment was full of Nazi paraphernalia. Assault weapons were always close at the ready. He'd prepared a bunker at the back that he'd built for the coming race wars, as he said. In the face of the KKK threats, Weiser called courageously the KKK hotline and left a personal message for Larry. Larry... He said, do you know that the very first laws that Hitler's Nazis passed were against people like you? 
people with physical deformities? Well, why do you love the Nazis so much? He called over and over again to the hotline with those types of messages. One day, Trapp picked up the phone. What the F do you want? He shouted. I just want to talk to you, Weiser said. You black? Trapp demanded. Jewish, he responded. What do you want? Stop harassing me. What do you want? And in that moment, Trapp, or Weiser rather, remembered something his wife had suggested. Well, he said, I was thinking you might need a hand with something. I understand that you're confined to a wheelchair. Maybe you'd like some help with your groceries. I'd be happy to help you with that. Trapp was stunned. He hesitated. He cleared his throat. He said, no, that's okay. Nice of you, but I got that covered. Please don't call me again. Weiser continued to call. Some interactions were acrimonious. Some had suggestions that Trapp was rethinking his perspective. That sparked the Weisers to pray. One night it was Trapp who called Weiser. I want to get out, Trapp said. But I don't know how. They offered to go over to his home and break bread with him. He hesitated, but then agreed. When they got to his apartment, he began to weep and began to tear off his swastika rings. And soon all three were weeping, then laughing, then hugging. Trapp resigned from all racist organizations. He wrote letters of apology to many that he'd threatened and abused. And three months later, he was given notice from his doctor that he had less than a year to live. The Wisers invited him into their home. And when he became too ill to care for himself, Julie, who was a nurse, left her job to care for him. There is a fabric, a pattern to resisting evil to trusting in the promise that God will make a final end to wickedness. And at its heart is love. Love of those who hate. Love of enemy. Love in word and deed and in prayer. Is that a guarantee that it'll always work out? No, that's not how wisdom literature works. But that is why the psalmist invites us to pray. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright. As we respond in keeping with the pattern, bless it, infuse it with your Spirit's power, guide it by your grace, bring good out of it. It may discourage us that love in response to hate is not a guarantee, but there's only one other option, and that is to resist evil with evil to pick up the weapons of the enemy, to fight back against them. And that response has a fabric, a pattern all to itself. Verse 5, But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Meaning if you fight back against evil with evil, you will become the very thing that you're fighting against and get caught up in God's final judgment against it. Such a pattern a fabric, a love of enemies sits at the heart of the gospel, the heart of Jesus' death and resurrection. For then the spirit or the scepter of wickedness rested 
upon the land. The forces of darkness rallied themselves, pouring out their fury with miscarried justice, violence, and a humiliating death upon a cross. He could have called down legions of angels to obliterate them. But instead, he laid down his life in love for his enemies. As much us as his Roman executioners. For at the cross, we see that evil cuts its way straight through us as well. The one who knew no sin became sin that we mired in sin might become the righteousness of God. And it appeared that hatred and violence had overcome love, and yet, three days later, light pierced the darkness. Death gave up its hold. Jesus arose, the first fruits of a new creation, the guarantee of this very promise that the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land. May we lay a hold of that truth by faith, by trust, such that when the crucible of circumstances tempts us to become hard, unloving, unforgiving, hate-filled, we will remain immovable, surrounded by the mountains of his grace, his love, his presence, his peace. The psalm closes with a blessing. Peace be upon Israel. And Eugene Peterson affirms that a colloquial, but in context, accurate translation would be, relax. We are secure. God is running the show. And in Jesus is returning to make everything new, to make a final end of wickedness, and to flood the earth with new creation. And so let us lay a hold of the fruit of that trust, being immovable and secure. And rest in the pattern of that trust, pushing back against wickedness in love. Peace be upon Israel. Relax. Rest in that truth, now and forevermore. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.